This episode is brought to you by Feel Free from BotanicTonics.com. Feel Free is a small two-ounce shot made from kava and other ancient plants, and the feeling that it provides is incredible. It is euphoric. It gives you this sense of focus. It reduces anxiety, and it just puts you in a relaxed state in your body. Think of it as a plant-based magical elixir that can uplift your mood, increase your productivity, and give you the energy to do the things you want to do today. There are so many applications for when you can use Feel Free. A few examples are using Feel Free to get into a flow state before yoga, meditation, or exercise. People are using this as a kind of energy drink to go running for miles at a time. And it's also great for socializing. It just makes it easier to connect to people around you. There isn't this kind of background hum of anxiety anymore. It just really melts away. And that also makes it a great replacement for alcohol. So if you're ready to feel free, go to botanictonics.com and use promo code ZIAN40 for 40% off. Again, that's botanictonics.com, promo code ZIAN40, X-I-A-N 40, at botanictonics.com. This episode is also brought to you by Sheath, the underwear of legends. What makes Sheath different is the pouch on the inside. Now this is a game-changing invention that completely revolutionizes the male undergarment. These are the most comfortable underwear I have ever worn by far. They've got amazing designs and styles, super comfortable fabrics. My favorite is the bamboo and also the V, which is a long leg athletic underwear that doesn't ride up and it supports you where it matters most. So go check out Sheath at sheathunderwear.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 20%. Once again, that's sheathunderwear.com, promo code TIMEWHEEL.
All right, we are rolling, and I'm here with my friend Eric Godsey. How's it going today, brother? Super good, man. How are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for being here. I'm super stoked that we finally get to do this. Uh, yeah. we've, do we've done a podcast in the past, um, but a lot has happened for both of us since that podcast. So, um, How long be has it been, do you know? I'm going to say two, two years. Yeah. Yeah, yep. two years. It's been a while, two years. I, I definitely know for you. I mean, for myself, it has been in many ways, too. But, you know, you've been through a lot in the past two years. Um, yeah, my life moves fast. Totally. Yeah, you're full speed ahead, um, which is one thing I love about you, man. There's so much I love about you, but that's one of them. Um, but, you know, to before we jump into the conversation, I wanted to say we just had a very profound experience at uh, the most recent Fit for Service event, which was uh, the Initiation Summit. Yeah. And uh, there was a bunch of like kind of hardcore initiation going on there. Yeah. Um, some of the most powerful containers I've ever been in. Um, but the, I'd say definitely the one that takes it home was the Temescal, which is like a sweat lodge. Yep. Um, I sauna every week five times a week a lot of times so i thought i was ready i was like oh this is gonna be cake yeah no that was the hardest thing i've ever done in my entire life like physically in yeah a, in the woman who held it her name is waira and um she's from colombia and she is one of the fiercest and like beautifully compassionate humans I've ever met, but her dojo is the fucking sweat. And she, <laughs> we asked her to do like um, half of the normal type of sweat that she does. And she said, yes. But as soon as we got into it, um, I, were you in the same one as me? I was, yeah. It was like three hours. And it's yep. like, she doesn't know how to do half of a sweat. And yeah, that was the hardest sweat that I've ever done. I've done probably about four with her. That's the hardest one with her I've done. Yep. And I've probably done about 10 to 12 total. And yeah, it's the type of thing where if you think you're ready, you're going to get broken. You know? Yeah, I got broken, dude. I mean, that was next level. But I did feel like it was a great experience to get to do with you in particular. I know there was several different coaches and stuff, but... You know, we've been through a lot, dude, you know, like, obviously, I'm a big fan of your show. We've done multiple podcasts. And then we did the Myths and Mind Project, which was epic. Oh, yeah. So it was awesome to get to experience that with you in particular. So yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, it humbled me. Um, I got to the point where both of my hamstrings were spasming to the point where I couldn't sit up. And so I had to lay down. So I had to like ask people to move so I could lay down. And mm -hmm. it was great. And like, I've shared this before, but there's some people who ask, you know, if ayahuasca works, why do you keep doing it? And one of the responses that I give is like, well, if brushing your teeth works, why do you keep doing it? It's because the way that we live in this world, we accumulate like some residue that if you don't clean out, it can get infected. Mm -hmm. And just doing like a good sweat, your ego thinks at some point you are going to die. You yeah. have to leave. If you Probably. don't leave, you will die. Like that's right. a good sweat. And, you know, it, you obviously, each individual has to, you know, make that choice for themselves whether or not they leave. But I've had enough of these experiences where I know it's my ego freaking out. And having at least like one of those a year, yeah. it's just like, I see it as like self-care. And I got that in this sweat. I, I had a moment. So the way the sweat is structured is there's what's, what's called four doors. 
And the four doors are like four rounds. When the door gets closed, it's all black and dark and hot. And you sing prayers and you sing songs until Wyra decides it's time to open the door. Mm-hmm. After door two, and there's four doors, I watched my ego play out the story because I, my heartbeat was like a surround sound IMAX in the back of my head. And, yeah. I, and I've never heard my heartbeat like that. And I was like, I watched my ego play out the story of Eric's about to have a heart attack. And then I saw my body being carried out of the sweat. And then I like almost like a movie. Like I was over Caitlin's shoulder while she was getting a text message that I had died. And I was just watching my ego freak out. But I've been in these states enough to be able to like move to witness mind and just like observe the monkey mind. Oh, the monkey mind really thinks we're going to die. You know, this is a good sweat. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, it just, it kind of just resets the entire template of life afterwards. Like Mm -hmm. what most people don't know is that there's a group of psychologists who um, interview people who jump off of the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge is the place in the U.S. where the most people will attempt to kill themselves in like a public venue. Mm -hmm. A decent amount, I don't know what the percentage is, but a decent amount of them survive just because of the nature of falling into the water. Mm -hmm. These interviews found that almost all of them, the moment they step off the ledge, there's this like instant cognitive recalibration where they regret having chosen to try to die. Mm -hmm. All of the problems that they saw in their life that they thought were unsolvable, like instantly just kind of like move out of the way as like not important. And they instantly connect to like whatever is important. And they actually, through surviving the attempt, have like a regenerated meaning for life. Mm. There's something about initiations that like in its highest ideal attempt to do that for people Mm -hmm. and the sweat got me close and it felt great and i you know yeah back to the fucking you know hardships of life like we live in a culture where it's it's tough on the soul you know like a part of being a warrior is you through all of this you don't succumb to nihilism and apathy and resentment and pessimism you show up you do what you can do to make it a little bit more beautiful, a little bit more fun, mm-hmm. and you do it again the next day. Amen. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So that makes me think. You know, the nihilism, the pessimism, the apathy—that's the easy way out. It's like that's surrender. That's kind of giving up, and it is almost a default state of being, like in the current culture, unfortunately. But uh, well, the thing you, that's interesting, you have that to be proactive, wanna, you know. Yeah, that I I want to be deeply compassionate for the people who choose that perspective because it's actually not easy. Mm-hmm. It's torturous. Like it's it is the type of disposition that will erode the quality of your soul. It's not easy, right. but people choose it because they don't see any other option. Yeah, something that's crazy to know is that. One of the ways that humans um, get 
mice into the type of somatic state where they can then experiment with antidepressive drugs is they put them into a glass of water and the mouse will attempt to swim until it gives up. Mm. And then they'll pick the mouse out of the cup and then they'll give it some type of antidepressant and see if it will try again. Because if you don't, after you do that enough times, the mouse won't try. Mm. But if you give it the right type of quote-unquote antidepressant, it'll try. We won't go down the rabbit hole of why um, there is no biological cause for depression. And that was a myth that was created by ad agencies that were employed by pharmaceutical companies. And that myth has been debunked for the last 10 years. But, but most people don't know. You can Google any major outlet and you can see that that myth has been debunked. But... Mm -hmm. The way that we create the symptoms of depression in an animal is you put it in a hopeless situation. Yeah. So a lot of people in our culture, because they don't have elders, because they don't have a strong family relationship with their father and their father's father and their father's father and their mother and their mother's mother, because we don't have great education, mm -hmm. because as a culture we lack initiatory structures, um, most people a lot of people don't even see an available option that yields any type of results that would lend itself to being hopeful, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not easy, but yeah, you know, it's the, it's one of the reasons why I fucking yap on all these podcasts and I read the books <laughs> and cause there are options. Like yeah. there are real things that people can start to do that will always improve whatever situation they're in in life. Absolutely. Yeah, that really does lead us into the this first round of topics because uh, I was in that position before my psychedelic experiences. I definitely was not hopeful. I had a very limited idea of what I was capable of in my life. I remember thinking when I was like 17, 18, if I just had a job at Best Buy selling computers, <laughs> I would have a happy life and yep. I would get to game at night with the boys, you know, like on a gaming computer. I was like, that's going to be my life. That's what I can attain to. You know, of course, when I was younger, I had visions of being a film director and a musician. And but, you know, somewhere along the lines, you kind of get dissuaded that it's really not realistic. It's really not possible. And I started to believe that story, uh, the Matrix, you know, um, through my later teen years and into college and until I had a psychedelic experience. And then all those stories went away and I just saw, wow, my universe, my reality is what I make it. And if I want to believe it's this or believe it's that, I'm right. So also I died. I had an ego death to the point I, I was for sure. I was like, I'm gone. I'm, I'm not coming back. And when I did come back, it was like a rebirth. And I was like, well, if I died and I'm back, I may as well do what I want to do in this life because this is my second chance. So that's where everything that people know me for now spawned, you know, the music, the, the, the film, the art, whatever, the podcast, all this stuff was because I had a second go at life because I died in this experience, in this psychedelic experience and decided I may as well do what I want now because this is a, this is a second chance. This is a free life. And I think that that kind of gets you out of these depressive states. And there's a couple of topics I want to go down, but I had an enlightening experience. And a bit later, I want to 
get into the topic of enlightenment. But uh, I truly felt like once I was this reborn person for weeks, I was in an enlightened state. Um, but psychedelics are very profound. Um, and I wanted to ask you about how you would describe a number of them. Um, I've got about five that I wanted to go through. But I know for us both, I think the first quote unquote psychedelic that we both tried was cannabis. And I was curious your view, you know, is cannabis a psychedelic? And what is it that you would describe is the effect of cannabis and maybe why it might be useful or maybe not useful in other circumstances? Yeah. I want to highlight something that you just articulated that I think is super important and that everyone listening um, will be able to identify their version of this story. Mm -hmm. So you said that when you were young, you wanted to be a filmmaker. Yeah. You wanted to be a musician. And then something happened. And then the best possible outcome that you can imagine for your life was like, okay, if I get a job at Best Buy, you know, I can work with computers and then I can game with the boys. Right. Because I know you, I know that you've also like <clears throat> your you're interested in really trying to learn what the upper limits of human nature is potential of doing, i.e. like rainbow body ascension from yogis and things like that. Right. A model that I think is really important for people to feel into is, um, and this comes from Mark Gaffney, and it's the pre-tragic, the tragic, and the post-tragic world. Mm -hmm. The pre-tragic world, what is what I would offer is like, it's the state of like, um, unwounded innocence in your pre-tragic artistic life, you wanted to be a filmmaker and you knew that when you were young Yeah. and the pre-tragic is destroyed by the tragic. Some element of reality comes in that shatters the pure innocence mm -hmm. and your tragic worldview was like the best that this world can possibly offer me is a job at Best Buy. And I get yeah. to you know, game with my boys at least once a week or something. Right. Most people, when they hit the tragic, the ego will do one of two things. The ego will either succumb to a depression where like, it will basically give up its will to become in the face of the tragic obstacle. You know, and that's when we enter the dark night of the soul where we truly don't see like, what's the fucking point. Right. And that depressive place that, that, our world breaks, our, our hope breaks. That's when people are um, susceptible to killing themselves or to start to drop into some type of addiction, which is like a long-term attempt to slowly kill themselves. Mm -hmm. The other response that a lot of people who have done psychedelics will be able to identify with if they'll be kind with themselves and allow themselves to identify with it is what's called inflation. Mm. Inflation is where in the face of the tragic obstacle, we inflate our, we attempt to inflate our egos above it. And mm. this is like, we'll, we'll get into it, but most people, most young people's, what they would call like period of enlightenment okay. could also be called like a period of mania, but it's where you're starting to see you're starting to realize that we live in an infinite universe yeah. where there is more potential than we can even comprehend. Mm -hmm. But there is also still reality. And when we're in that state, it's like we 
we feel as if we don't have to abide by the laws of reality, sure. you know, and it's a technical point, but the laws of reality are not fixed. We don't know them absolutely. Our understanding of the laws of reality will always grow. Yeah. But we currently have enough of an understanding about the laws of reality where no matter what type of yogi exists, if they were to take a step off of the off of a skyscraper, 10,000 times out of 10,000 times, they're going to fall at the same rate of speed and the outcome will be that they will be dead on the cement. So they're, regardless of your state, and you might actually come from a worldview where you don't agree with that perspective. And it's like, it's convenient that for people who don't agree with that, there's not a single piece of recorded evidence currently of that type of thing. You know, So just the point is, reality has something to say, regardless of who you believe that you are. Mm. What I would offer is both the inflation and the depression are the attempts to grapple with the tragic obstacle. The third stage, so there's the pre-tragic, there's the tragic, and then there's the post-tragic. Mm -hmm. The post-tragic is where you carry with you the truth of the tragic elements of life, like whatever the things were that fucking wounded you and like mm -hmm. broke you. You bring those with you, but you... you um become available to regain the parts of the pre-tragic that were beautiful. And so the post-tragic the post for you, I would offer, is mm -hmm. you can be a filmmaker. You are a filmmaker and a musician. And where people can get stuck is instead of being a filmmaker, which is what the yearning was in the pre-tragic innocence, they try to become the yogi that gets the rainbow body. <laughs> like That is a way to get away. If that is the chosen path, instead of coming back to actually being a filmmaker and a musician, mm -hmm. that's where people can start to get lost. So, and mm -hmm. we, we can come back to this later at the end of the podcast, but this type of structure is available for everybody. Wow. You know, so just yeah, one. That's profound. So. Yeah. Cannabis. Um, your first question was like, you know, do I see it as a psychedelic? Of course. Mm -hmm. Um with all of these descriptions, like the, if you imagine that ingesting it and then having whatever type of experience it creates in your consciousness as like you're meeting the spirit of that thing, each of these things have multiple spirits depending on the level at which you ingest it, you know? So like a puff of cannabis is way different than you doing like a dab of fucking glass. Right, know? right. So... The hash oil, yeah. So, um, cannabis for me, my first experience with cannabis was actually traumatic. And um, it created this interesting relationship with cannabis that I bet most people here listening are going to resonate with. So, mm -hmm. the first time I smoked cannabis, I was uh, 18 or 19. And um, I was being a fucking hard ass and my friend, uh, got like the best weed he could find. And we rolled three like fat blunts, <laughs> me, him, and one other friend. Yeah. And we smoked the first blunt. And after we were done, I was like, I don't feel anything. <laughs> and my friend looked at me, eyes just fucking shot red. I was like, okay. <laughs> so we light the next blunt. We smoke all of that. And I'm still like, I don't feel anything. 
And it's because I didn't, I didn't have any type of connection with myself to even be able to like discern how my consciousness had already changed. My only thing I'd interacted with was alcohol. And basically I would either not drink or I would black out, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's how disconnected I was from my inner experience. So he lights up the third blunt and I still remember, I, I can still see it in my mind's eye. I take the first hit and I pass it to my friend who's in front of me. And we have a friend who's over to our left. As I'm passing it to my friend in front of me, I'm seeing the blunt come in from my other friend back into my hand. Mm -hmm. Because at high doses, marijuana can inhibit short-term memory Mm. to the point where from the experiencing self, it's like you time hop. And that time hopping can be very scary because you don't know how you got to the moment that you're in. And if you're prone to paranoia, which weed tends to help people be prone to paranoia, Mm -hmm. you will backfill that gap in your memory with the most terrifying possible interpretation. So so I basically smoked without the awareness of how high I got until I was in that maximal time hopping thing, which is just... It's a place I never want to get. Like if I'm there on weed, I've I've gotten too high. Yeah. So we somehow end up back in the living room and my friend is playing Call of Duty while our third friend is face down on a mattress that was in the living room because we were poor and this is the way our house was structured. Mm-hmm. Just laughing, just face down laughing. <laughs> and I'm sitting on the couch and my perception was that my face started to melt away. So like my intersubjective proception of my face mm-hmm. was as if it was melting and I was just eyeballs. Wow. And there was something about it that was like super cool. But then that time hopping thing happened because my friend was just laughing and laughing. And mm-hmm. if you're prone to paranoia, the most terrifying thing you could possibly hear is laughter that you don't know why the laughing is happening. Oh, that's true. Right? That will just trigger your paranoia. So my thought, and we could psychoanalyze this, and I have, but let's not do it. My, (laughs) My first thought was my friend who was playing Call of Duty was trying to play a joke on me, and he slammed a car door trying to like slam my arm in it, but it actually slammed my dick in it, and my dick broke, and I went to the hospital, and now we are back from the hospital. Oh my fucking God. That was the ridiculous story that came in to backfill the time hopping. And so I still remember, like I, I could draw the look on his face when I turned over to him, you know, I, I haven't spoken in an hour. Yeah. I turned to him and I go, dude, what the fuck? And he looked over at me just like, just no whites in his eyes, just all red. And he was like, dude, what? And I realized that I was kind of losing my mind. Okay. After that, my relationship with weed was that like, I smoked way less and what it would do for me is like the way a psychologist would articulate it is it opens up divergent thinking. So it allows for like non ordinary connections between things that when you're sober, you don't even see that there's a connection between them. Mm -hmm. When that's finely tuned, 
that's creativity. When that's perfectly tuned, that's genius. When that's not tuned, that's psychosis. And that just seems to be like kind of the nature of cannabis is that because it because it works on that like explicitly creative thing and there's something about it that's mental as opposed to like mushrooms or something that's more somatic when it's finely tuned it's a great creative device and like when i use marijuana the best it's like it makes sports way better it makes yeah. sex way better it makes mm-hmm. music way better it makes trying to understand something technical fun you know, right. so like if I want to try to understand like a technical aspect of like physics or something, if I get just a little bit high, it's interesting. If yeah. I get too high, I think physics is being becoming a symbol for God trying to tell me. No, that's right. <laughs> There's something really interesting about marijuana with me that I've described to other people that it, it tends to resonate with most people is that marijuana has a unique capacity to hijack my intuition and pair it with paranoia. Mm. And so what I mean by that is there's a feeling of a genuine epiphany that there's something about like, as you're having a epiphany, it, it feels like you're grokking something true, like something fundamentally true. Yeah. And on mushrooms, and on LSD and on ayahuasca, I never have epiphanies that the result of the epiphany is like a paranoid thought. Mm-hmm. But on marijuana, it's like I become um, the Lovecraft of my own brain. So like Lovecraft is one of the greatest horror writers of all time, mm-hmm. um, H.P. Lovecraft. There's something about my psyche as it mixed with weed where it's like, I am trying to existentially horrify myself by the most, by trying to come up with metaphysics that can't be philosophically disproven, whose outcome is like a horror movie. Mm -hmm. That's a very real part of me that still to this day I have to contend with at times. And I think it's because... um, there's a very genuine philosophical part of me that's like, I don't, I don't want to believe shit just because it feels good. Mm-hmm. I want to try to f- figure out what's true. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize when I was young and I was mainly smoking weed is there is a type of thought that is unprovable forever, you know, and that's essentially, you know, what we mean when we say the word metaphysics. Mm-hmm. As we currently understand it, anything that's in that domain is untestable. It's unprovable. It doesn't yield any type of good explanation for how to conduct yourself in the world to get an, an outcome that you want. In the same way that like, if you learn engineering, you can build a house. Mm-hmm. So it's true to the extent that you can fucking build a house with it. Physics is true to the extent that we can fly planes every fucking day and you're more likely to be struck by lightning and die than to die on a plane. Like, so that's pretty fucking true. All of these ideas that I was contending with as a teenager, it's like really what I was doing is I was mentally masturbating because I didn't want to engage with life yet. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why that is. Weed now is something that I will do a very small amount of and not every day. 
and I specifically pair it with um, trying to do something artistic that's playful. Mm-hmm. And what I find is that when I do it right, I love this plant. Yeah. And cannabis has probably injured me more than any of the psychedelics I have done because a lot of the ways that I did it was very irresponsible. Mm-hmm. I heard a very cool idea, which is, you know, completely untestable, but I thought it was very interesting, which is that if you believe that plants are spirits and they're like a part of the collective unconscious and they're like an entity, you know, like there's like an overmind of ayahuasca, which if you've done ayahuasca, it really feels like that's the case. If you believe that cannabis has a spirit, this person made the argument that um, even though cannabis has been an ally to the human soul for hundreds of thousands of years and loves humans, in the last few hundred years, she's gotten really fucking mad. Mm. And it's because of the way that we treat her. Yeah. It's because for the first time, you know, in our entire history with her, at least through recorded history, we've like, we're exploiting her, yeah. you know? And that like, it's, it's not the type of relationship that you would have with something that you respected and loved. Like we're right. treating it like it's just a commodity. And funny enough, my true ego death moment, like I had done LSD and mushrooms and DMT, mm-hmm. but the thing that like killed my first identity was I was 26 and I accidentally ate like 180 milligrams of THC yeah, yeah, I remember this story. <laughs> and um, fucking annihilated me in such a way that I made it through. And I won't tell this whole story because we got a lot of other stuff to talk about. But when I woke up the next day, because I had been so thoroughly destroyed the night before, I like woke up with this promise. Like it just mm-hmm. kind of spontaneously came out of me. And the promise was whenever I feel the call to do something by my soul, especially if I'm afraid, I'm just going to fucking do it because nothing that life could create will be worse than what I just went through. Yeah. Literally six days after I made that promise, I got my, I got the job at on it. I had been unemployed for a year. And before that I had worked at a call center. And before that I had worked at Chipotle after getting a degree in psychology, it was wrapping burritos at Chipotle, working at a call center for a fucking insurance company being an unemployed for a year. And then I make that promise. And within six days, yeah. I'm flying to Austin because I'd been living with my mom about mm-hmm. to start this job at on it that has now turned into this whole fucking life that I have now. That's crazy. I mean, it sounds in a way like cannabis was a giant psychedelic experience and initiation for you through all of that. I mean, through... Oh, the initial things you said, but then that experience where you were, yeah, it shook your ego to the point that you were like, nothing in my life could be more f- scary or crazy than, than that, what I just experienced. So I may as well lean into my fear a bit and try things I'm a little bit afraid to do. And yeah, I can't uh, agree more, you know, uh, psychedelics have certainly shown me that same thing. Um, so it's funny, yeah, because a lot of not a lot, but I've certainly heard that people don't consider cannabis a psychedelic. Um, but for me, it was as well. And I think it's what opened me up to 
understanding inner experience to the point that I was actually interested in trying the other psychedelics. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, I think the test to run for people, anyone who claims that they don't believe that weed is a psychedelic, mm-hmm. take more than a hundred milligrams of an edible in darkness with music. And if you come out of that and you say that you still don't think it is a psychedelic, then we will agree to disagree, but I'll respect your opinion. If you haven't done that, it's like the people, there are some really famous, like there are some really famous intellectuals in our culture right now who have not done psychedelics, who say that there is nothing there when it comes to psychedelics. And it's like, bruh, don't talk about sex if you haven't had sex. Like you can say that you don't know, but to claim that you know that there's no there there and you've never had sex, it's like, you're a fucking hypocrite. So, right, right. Yeah. I agree. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, I wanted to skip ahead a couple um, because this molecule is, uh, I would say probably the most healing. I don't know if it was the most in, initiatory i would say probably cannabis for myself was the most initiatory um but mdma um which is also called an intactogen um so maybe not classified as a psychedelic but maybe that's a question you can address a little bit too is is it a psychedelic for me i go on like inward pilgrimages into my memory i'm able to see things i've forgotten uh, address them very much in an IFS manner where I can kind of bring love to this part of myself I've abandoned or totally blocked a memory out of. And, and it's, therefore, it's been the most healing for me personally to be mm-hmm. able to rewrite the stories or understand yeah. how, I, how I picked up trauma and why I should maybe let go of it or at least try my best to, to do that. Right. Um, so for you... How would you describe MDMA and, and what are its effects? Yeah, so first to the question of whether or not it's a psychedelic, you actually raise an interesting set of um, observations, which is like, it's almost like, so psychedelic, one of the definitions of it is that it's mind manifesting. Yeah. And that, especially after just hearing you talk about, like, you can take MDMA and do a inner journey in an IFS type way where you're doing almost this like waking dream walk through where you're healing parts of you. Yeah. That experience is psychedelic. So what I would offer is um, MDMA doesn't force your consciousness into a psychedelic state in the way that something like if you take enough LSD, I don't care who you are, you're, it's going to be psychedelic. But with MDMA, it doesn't force it to become, but it can easily become if you know how to get there. Mm-hmm. So you could claim just for having, just so our categories of classification have any meaning, you could say it's not, but it absolutely could be used that way if you have the right inner technologies to do so. Gotcha. So for me, what MDMA is um, uniquely beautiful at doing is healing trauma. And you've talked about this, but there's a unique chemical effect that MDMA has on the brain that is almost like it was designed to help people heal trauma. And it's that it, 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 it force creates through the chemicals it makes secrete in the body, the feeling of radical safety. 
Yeah. And that feeling of deep safety is a prerequisite for some of these more troubling experiences from our past to come into consciousness. So it seems to help people remember things yeah. that otherwise would be almost too painful for them to bring back. Right. Also, um, there's this overwhelming feeling of like love and goodwill. So safety and love are not the same in this experiential model that we're trying to paint right now, but that mm -hmm. what love does, like the feeling of like love and goodwill and compassion, what it does is if you, what a lot of people don't know about our memory and about our emotions is whatever current emotional state you are in, if you recall a memory into this state, the emotion of this state changes the feeling of the memory a bit. So if you're in a state of fear and you re, re this is a great example. If you're upset and you bring back something to memory of a thing that used to upset you, you actually add more anger to it. Mm -hmm. And our memory is not like a camera. Every time you recall a thing, you slightly change and tweak that memory. Yeah. Where this works with MDMA is that you can bring up a memory that had no love in it when it was happening. But because you're in this deep state of love, it starts to like permeate into that experience. And at the very least, you can start to create a loving connection to the you that experienced it. Because yeah. a lot of our traumatic experiences, we don't have love for the us that experienced it we have shame or like disgust or fear. Like if we don't have love for the four-year-old us that went through the thing that we can't speak about. Mm -hmm. And that's why we can't speak about it. It's because we haven't created that compassionate bond with that part of us that went through it. Like a lot of people blame themselves for whatever the awful thing is that happened to them when they were powerless you know, to do otherwise. The really cool thing about MDMA is that if you have any type of psychoanalytic framework like you do, you can start to do something that I don't know what researchers classify it as. I don't know how they describe it, but I know that they know that this is one of the things that MDMA can do because I've I've read a lot of the books that like are popular on this from a research standpoint. Mm -hmm. But the idea is, one of the ways that you can actually heal trauma is if you get into a non-ordinary state of consciousness, you can play through like a waking symbolic dream that is basically like a psychedelic hallucination that the culmination of that vision is the actual alchemy of whatever the trauma is that was trapped in your body. So a famous example that was in one of the books, I believe the book is called Acid Test. And Acid mm. Test was written by a journalist in conjunction with maps about three v veterans who went through the first rounds of these MDMA protocols to work on trauma. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories that stuck out in that book is that this dude had been to war, a bomb had gone off by him, his, his friends died, he lived, and he fucking hated himself for the fact yeah. that you know he got to live. Through doing a couple of sessions of psychotherapy, um, he was then given MDMA. 
And because he had started to work with symbols, he had this vision of him going down these dungeon stairs, like deep into the earth. And then he arrived at a dungeon and there was a younger broken part of him inside of the cell. And it was all like ugly and grotesque and shit. And then he opened the door and he like went to it with love and it transformed into into like a child. And that most of the things that they were tracking as a result of his high score of PTSD before this experience went down dramatically. And he equates it, at least in part, to this vision. Yeah. And like, this is something that's really interesting for people to understand about the nature of our psyches, which is that our psyches have the potential to get into a non-ordinary state where we are participating in what is fundamentally a dream Mm -hmm. that's symbolic, but that it can have such an emotional punch to it that we can actually alchemize some of our deepest traumas without having to like relive them directly. And that's something that's available with MDMA. For me, and also just as a word of caution to to people, test your shit. Most MDMA, most of the things that are sold as MDMA have no MDMA in them. And then of the fraction, I think it's something like 70%. This was a study that was done probably about eight years ago, but there was like a random sampling of the MDMA street drugs in the US and they broke it down by state. But the average was something like 70% of what was sold as being MDMA had no MDMA in it. Hmm. And then like um, 26% or something had some MDMA in it, but also a bunch of shit you don't want in you. And then like 4% was pure. Mm -hmm. So like that was a random sample of the drug market of MDMA 10 years ago maybe eight years ago. So I don't know if it's improved or not, but mm-hmm. test your shit. You can get a Regent kit online and at least make sure it's not shit that you don't want in you. Right. My experience with MDMA, the first time I took it, I think I was 24, maybe 23. And uh, I was having a date with my partner at the time and her and I were playing Smash Bros while we were waiting for the MDMA to come up. Yeah. It was so funny, man. We got to the point where we we couldn't attack each other in the game. Like it just wow. didn't make sense. And so we just kind of like and I before MDMA, because she liked to play Smash Bros, I loved just destroying her. You know? like, <laughs> if you want to play, I'm I'm not gonna hold back and just she's I, I don't think I ever lost a life to her. If she's listening, she'll she'll probably disagree with me. But when we were coming up on the MDMA, we just couldn't it didn't even make sense to keep so we put down the controller and we we just like hung out yeah and i still remember the room that we were in i still remember the way the sun was starting to come down because we started it in the evening right after i got off of work and we were listening to the fantagram album i think their first one and just fucking like we weren't even like talking to each other we were just both in the room I was on one couch and she was on the other and we were just blissed out because it was the first time either of us had ever experienced this. And it was just like, yeah, it's a realm of peace 
and love that before you experience it, it literally is not available to you to even yeah. imagine it. Seems impossible, yeah. It's not even, you can't even imagine it to claim it's impossible. Like it's just, it's not an option on the menu of the video game that you have. <laughs> yeah. And the thing, like it just happened effortlessly, but I had been studying a lot of evolutionary psychology and a lot of cognitive psychology. And I was just like lamenting at how hopelessly like self-delusional humans are. And just how like hopelessly trapped by our genes impulses we are and how like we're so much dumber than we think we are. And just like, I was just reading all these studies that just confirmed that over and over and over and over again. Yeah. As the MDMA was peaking, I just had this profound internal shift where I kind of like realized my pure consciousness is like a zookeeper, a zookeeper. Mm -hmm. And my animal consciousness is like a monkey. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, we're all monkeys trying our best. And again, right. this wasn't like a thing that I had to think. It was a feeling that I've now given words to after the fact. But it was just this profound, all-encompassing forgiveness to myself mm -hmm. for just being a fucking goofy monkey and for everybody else, like we're all just these goofy monkeys doing our best in a right. impossible situation. Yeah. And like from that point forward, like I don't have, all right. So a lot of people will have a inner critic where like if they do, if they fuck a thing up, they might go like shit. Yeah. Or like fuck. And if it's really bad, they'll be like, you fucking idiot. What's wrong with you? Like, that's yep. the more intense version. Ever since that MDMA experience, my response is a giggle. Mm -hmm. And it has been for fucking 10 years. I don't ever think, like, maybe less than 10 times in 10 years, like, I have to be really out of alignment with myself for my inner thought to me doing something quote unquote wrong to be like, mm -hmm. fuck, or you, yeah. you fucking like idiot, like almost never. It's sure. a giggle because right. there's my fundamental orientation to myself and all other people is like a compassionate, we're just fucking goofy monkeys. That yeah. profoundly changed my life. And it didn't come with any vision it didn't come with any type of like, and then the world melted and then God Krishna revealed its 10,000 heads. No, it was just right. this like, it just felt like a thing clicked into place. It was just like one of my vertebrae and my spine, I didn't realize had been dislocated my whole life and it just went. Yep. And I was just like, well, <laughs> now what's been interesting is since then, I don't have a deep appetite for MDMA. Because what I find on MDMA is that once people have done it more than once, there can be this hungry ghost energy to MDMA mm -hmm. that on the come down of MDMA, people who are unconsciously in the hungry ghost energy, who are trying to recapture that, like, they're trying to recapture the epiphany intimacy that happened at the peak that is now in the past. Yeah. That is one of the most like 
heartbreaking and uncomfortable states to be in as like a friend that if I'm around a friend who like their eyes are wide and you can just see that they're trying to grasp for like an epiphany that like it's gone. Yeah. We're on the come down. It was beautiful. Yeah. And let's just be in the come down. Right. And I've just, I've, I've had enough experiences with enough different types of people to feel like it's a pretty big pattern yeah. where um, unless the MDMA, like I'm not interested in doing MDMA with a group of people, unless it's like a super special occasion. Sure. I prefer to do it either with my partner or if I have a very close friend who specifically has asked me to sit for them to help move through some type of trauma, I'll yeah. do a, a small amount while they do a large amount just to yeah. be on the same wavelength. But, um, yeah, I, MDMA is one of those things where like, if you haven't done it, the payoff to do it. And if mm -hmm. you do it right is paradigm changing worldview transforming. Right. A, important. But then after that first time, if that really lands, it seems like the payoff drop off is pretty steep. Yeah. Unless you develop a really sophisticated kind of psychotechnology with it. Cause it's yeah. one of those things where, um, a thing that I have seen is I've seen people in relationships where the truth of the relationship is y'all motherfuckers are done mm -hmm. and they force MDMA to keep it together for months or years. And the byproduct of the like pain of using MDMA to try to force a relationship to, to stay together is tragic. So cool. it's got wow. pros and cons. Yeah. Damn. I've never considered that. Absolutely. Yeah. Very profound. Um, I remember from myself with MDMA, one of the initial things I, I, I knew it had come on, you know, I took it lay on the couch, definitely a good environment uh, with proper guides and set and setting uh, was like, I don't know, I want to say 45 minutes to an hour in, it was just this giant, <sighs> I love you guys, <laughs> you know, like to the people I'm with, I wasn't ashamed to say it. Some other part of us, not in that stage, kind of like, I don't want to be all sappy or too lovey. It's like, I'm it's, it's embarrassing to love your bros maybe, or, <laughs> But it's like, oh, I fucking love you guys, man. Like, damn. Yeah. That was nice. You know, like that was nice. And then as well, I think in that same first journey, I learned to dance by dropping the judgment on myself and also what I thought other people would think. I realized they don't care. Yeah. Like, some part of me was in fear that like, if I move away, that's uncool. They're going to judge me. They're not going to like me. That's embarrassing. Don't even risk it. Uh, I remember I was dancing for the first time, almost like moving my whole body and not just headbanging. Like I tell the story about how before this experience, my dance was this. Mm -hmm. That's about all the dance I could muster. Like even at a concert, like a dope concert. I'm like, yeah, I love this. This is sick. But I could not move my arms, I couldn't move my legs, couldn't move my feet, none of that. But uh, I was just like doing these like weird hand movements, looking ways. And I was like, am I bothering you guys? 
I, I felt comfortable enough to ask. And they're like, no. I was like, are you sure? Like, what if I do this? And they're like, no, <laughs> not, not bothering me at all. I'll keep doing yeah. it. And I was like, fuck, like, I think I just learned to dance. Yeah. You know, it's like just to not care. There's a African proverb and it's, um, if they can walk, they can dance. If they can talk, they can sing. And mm. anyone who has the belief that they can't sing or they can't dance, there will come a point or they will have the self-realization that um, it's just shame and yeah. not just shame because just diminishes. Just, mm -hmm. the word just is an assault on what, whatever word comes after it. Mm -hmm. Shame is the thing that, shame might be the most important thing for people to contend with when it comes to their own becoming who they could be, mm -hmm. which you might be able to argue is the most important thing that a human could care about is how to become what they know they could be. Like there's, you know, the quote from Jung, like the greatest um, gift of your life is to become who you truly are. Mm -hmm. That might sound like a hallmark now, but if you know all the other shit Jung said, you would see that like that's an epiphany because he looked at the, the fucked up parts of us deeply. Mm -hmm. But that, think about, try this thought experiment on nothing in the known universe has been able to stop the evolutionary process from evolving until humans developed shame. Mm -hmm. There is no animal that can negate its becoming. All animals cannot help but to be in the instinctual flow of them becoming what they're meant to be. Yeah. Humans are the first creature in the known universe that has the capacity to deny its evolving. Mm -hmm. Like we all like imagine if tree imagine if seeds could stop themselves from becoming trees. Right. Like in some profound level, consciousness is the ability to be disobedient. Mm -hmm. You know, in some real deep, profound sense. And the thing that stops our genuine unfolding is shame. Yeah. Like the part of you that wanted to be a filmmaker, and this is for everybody listening, the part mm -hmm. of you that as an innocent child wanted to become X. Yeah. The fact that you're not pursuing that right now, you know, on some level is shame. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some people who would make the arguments and they would say like, no, it's not shame. It's because I'm poor or it's because, you know, the country has fucked up or it's because there's no... Mm -hmm. In order for that argument to be true you would need to also have been genuinely trying every day for years where you get in front of crowds or you go outside into the fucking streets and you're always recording and you're always producing. Only those people can claim that the world's fucked. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is, is using that excuse as a way to not do the things that they're afraid to do, which is like mm -hmm. go outside with your camera and fucking start making shit and share it every day. Or if Absolutely. you're, you know, and so shame is this really potent force and uh, there's a great quote it's by mark gaffney again and the quote is the nature of shame is to conceal itself mm -hmm. like the nature of the energy of shame is to get you to not look at it and so it yeah. gets to live in the lack of your attention or your awareness mm 
And the beauty of MDMA is like out of all of the possible drugs in our current pantheon, there's something about the nature of MDMA that allows us to like bring light to where we have shame and to reclaim from the shame some genuine passion. You know, because wherever you feel shame, it's because there's a genuine urge to express in some type of way. Yeah. That's being contained by this like shell of shame. And MDMA has a way of just removing that shell. And now you have a new ex- expressive tool to just be you out in the world. And it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the last note on MDMA before we move on is just kind of like, I've had that exact epiphany about like, wow, why is it that I have this shame to speak about this memory or this even thing I'm going through currently or whatever it is. And since MDMA releases that, um, you can even bring it up to have like a conscious communication moment with your friend or whoever you're doing the ceremony with um, to just kind of be like, can we talk about something? Like, I want to bring this up. And then when you actually talk about it and even cry through it, some part of you is healed from it, especially because you were witnessed and heard. You know what I mean? 100%. There's a very psychedelic idea is to really think about what feeds a baby most? How do babies become humans? What do they need to be fed? Mm-hmm. And there's very good scientific evidence to argue that the fundamental nutrients that grows babies into humans is the attention of other humans. Mm. So when you track a baby, all like the most interesting thing to a baby is to basically catch the attention of an adult. Yeah. Is to like look into the eyes of the mom. Mm. And there's food being exchanged through these two organisms. And it's like the thing that grows humans is like the felt sense that the other is here with me Mm. in relationship. That it's like, it's it's a fundamental food. And because the nature of shame is to conceal itself, when we have shame parts, it turns away from the gaze of the other. Mm. And like the beauty of the human nervous system is if you can just get to the point where you attempt to say the truth, Mm -hmm. some type of ancient intelligence starts to unfold in you that takes care of the rest. All you got to do is get to the point where you can just say the truth to a human that you, who the truth needs to be spoken to, you know? Mm -hmm. And of course there's deep nuance where, Um, just because you're doing the work doesn't mean that your parents are doing the work. And so there might be things that like you realistically will never be able to talk to your parents about, about what, about what happened because they'll never be able to receive it in the way that would be anything other than more pain. Mm -hmm. And that's why in these types of spaces, if you have a good space holder, they can work through that with you where they can actually kind of hold the energetic charge of the mom or the dad or whoever. Mm -hmm. or your psyche will just do it for you. There's a thing in therapy called transference, which without going too far down any rabbit holes, the way it fits to what we are talking about is transference or transference happens when you unconsciously start to project mom or dad or ex-partner or whoever onto Mm -hmm. the person who's helping you. 
and I've I've sat for people in MDMA type stuff that tends to happen, especially if they had intense trauma. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Wow. Very powerful compounds. Um, but to echo what you said earlier, definitely, you know, let's use all of these things. We're here touting the benefits, but like, let's use these things wisely. Let's use them sparingly and let's use them as medicines because the difference between a medicine and a poison is the dose and the frequency. Yeah. So, I mean, you could take too much MDMA. It's like, yeah, it, it healed Matt and Eric. But like for me, I'm taking, I want to be triple healed and 10x healed. And you took 10 times us and now it's really hurt you. You really look up these things on Arrowhead, look at the dosages, look how often to use them or not use them. And just be smart, guys. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, to move on to the next one, and I want to make this the last one um, before we move on to these other couple topics. But this one is is very interesting and, and really goes hand in hand with what I was just saying about use it wisely, which is ketamine. Yeah. Um, now, ketamine is a, a newer one for me, um, and I've used it a couple dozen times in, in proper set and settings. And it is very unique. Um, it's very interesting. It's very psychedelic, but strangely non-anxiety producing. It's very comfortable and warm and allows you to get into some deep spaces and deep, almost astral type experiences with very little fear, if any fear at all. Whereas some of these other compounds like LSD or DMT, even cannabis, like, yes, you can go to the astral, but part of you is kind of afraid, you know, like part of you is a little bit like, this is intense sure. as fuck, bro. You know, with ketamine, that kind of, I'm, I'm afraid of the intensity isn't as present. I'm not saying it can't be present for certain people. It yeah. probably can be. But for myself, I feel this sense of like, okay, I'm, I'm cool here, even though this is fucking crazy. Um, but so for yourself, how would you describe ketamine and, and, and how has it maybe impacted you or, you know, pretty much what we've been doing with all these other molecules? Yeah. So the first time I did ketamine, I think it was um, three years ago, maybe four. Mm -hmm. may have been even five, but I remember I was working at on it and this was before. So I had different lifetimes at on it, but the first life span at on it was, um, this is the opportunity of my life. I'm working 12 hours a day. And one of the <laughs> agreements I made to myself is I'm not fucking anyone at work. Like, mm -hmm. this is too important. I'm not going to any <laughs> parties. I'm not fucking doing anything. I'm just here to do my best because this is my opportunity, you know, because I came from, I came from a place where making uh, 13 an hour, I felt rich, you know, like mm -hmm. that's just so, totally. and I still think I was in that phase of my life. So, but I got invited to come to Aubrey's house where there was going to be like 15 of us and a doctor was going to inject MDMA or not MDMA, but ketamine yeah. as like a group experiment mm -hmm. where we would just like talk about it afterwards because it was like brand new and not anyone had like had experience with it like this mm -hmm. so it was an injection and it was a i i don't know what the dose was but um th so there's injections there's trochees and then there's like where you like snort it um mm -hmm. i don't i've never snort no i've snorted it once but um I've only done stuff that has, that has come from doctors because I'm just not, 
I don't like any drug enough to fucking just get it sure. off the fucking streets. Not totally. interested. But that first time, what it felt like is it felt like the entire inner structure of my life. Mm-hmm. Before ketamine, it's hard to even appreciate that it feels like the entire game of life is not, it's not out here. It's not even a headset. It's literally like in your eyes, like you're so enmeshed in your life that you have no perspective whatsoever that it's your construct. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's the world. Like when people say the world, they're talking about their reality tunnel. And if you can't like take yeah. that off, you're completely fused with your reality tunnel and you don't have perspective. And that type of lack of perspective is actually almost a requirement for depression. Mm. You know, because we live in an infinite universe. There's an essence of depression that is inherently self-obsessed and and like it it can't help it. It's just like, these are my problems. This is why I can't do it. This is why I, 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 I. Mm -hmm. The ketamine, it felt like if my entire worldview was a house, it felt like I fucking zoomed out of the house and I could see the neighborhood and then I could see the city and then I could see the state. And it was to the point where I was like deep in space where I could barely even see the earth. And it was just like a <laughs> resounding peace. Yeah. And I, and I just got to like sit in the like, like there were no like epiphanies. There was no content really happening. It was just this profound sense of spaciousness. And I think that this is a a weird, like the K-hole phenomenon is the phenomenon of getting this type of spaciousness without the proper container. Mm-hmm. Like if you're out and you're trying to do something with your meat suit, if you go this deep, it's going to be terrifying. Yeah. But if you're in a house with people that you trust and respect and you're in a nice little fucking like blanket nest and a fucking doctor with a license, with a medical license gave it to you and there's like a nurse in the room. Right. It was just profoundly beautiful. And then I didn't do ketamine again for probably about like 18 months or two years because I just wasn't, you know, like... Mm I have other things I like to play with and it, it was a cool experience. Sure, sure. But then there was this like revolution that's happened with a lot of companies where now you can just like get it sent to your house from like right. fucking doctors offices and shit. Yeah. And um I've only done ketamine a few times where I didn't pair it with cannabis. So I actually don't have much of a memory of what it used to feel like, but basically Ketamine wasn't that interesting to me until I started to pair it with cannabis. And then once I paired it with cannabis, it was like, this is a whole new fucking thing. And the, uh, this is not backed by any research or whatever. Cause I, I think it's very new and I don't know what type of researcher would have the, um, courage to try to get a grant to be like, let's test ketamine stacked with cannabis. But what I find is that ketamine is incredibly good for um if you don't take too much like you really have to take a small amount i think to do anything useful with it unless you un- unless you're acutely depressed which i'm not so i 
I don't need to take it to have that type of relief. But it's like, you know, if I take a low dose of ketamine and I pair it with a small amount of weed, what it allows me to do is the weed keeps me in my body. So like, mm-hmm. I'm like connected to my body and the senses and like smells and music and movement. But the ketamine gives me like just enough spaciousness from yeah. all the drama of Eric that I can like start to like look around my worldview for like what needs my attention now that I can just get this little bit of space away from. And like, I have so many good ideas that come from it. I don't, I'm sure this happened to you. And I think a lot of other people who smoke weed do this. Mm -hmm. I used to smoke weed when I was younger and be sure that I just had a epiphany that would change my entire life. And I'd scribble it down and like, Oh my God, this is the secret of the universe. Right. And then I'd wake up the next day and I'd look at it and be like, smile at people when you see them. And it was like, <laughs> what the fuck was even happening last night? So yeah. now I think it's just a, I think it's a product of me just maturing, but I also think it's a nature of having um, cannabis paired with ketamine. But the insights I write down at night when I have this, when I do take it, Mm-hmm. They make sense in the morning and they're still good ideas. And it's like, yeah. that's a big deal to me, you know, because totally. like the majority of my life, um, whenever I've tried to use any of these things for creativity, it's like I might have a really awesome creative moment, mm-hmm. but I I didn't bring back almost anything useful, you know. But sure. like with this combination, I'm able to bring stuff back that's useful. Now. this again is ketamine in a low dose with cannabis in a low dose like i can still walk and talk and all that stuff Mm -hmm. i've experimented with high doses of ketamine with a bunch of weed and buddy Mm -hmm. as psychedelic as it gets uh incredible like some of the hardest experiences that i've had in the last you know after I accidentally ate too much weed, I'm now very careful with how much weed I eat. Yeah, yeah. So that hasn't been a problem. Now the hard thing is when I accidentally take too much ketamine with cannabis, and it's only happened like three times in three years, but each time was, um, if I'm being lazy, I would say it's a hell experience, and I could articulate more clearly what that is. But um, there's profound opportunities for i think what i would call like mythopoetic healing so like all of us have a mythopoetic story about who we are where we're going and what our role is in helping the world become whatever we think it could become Mm -hmm. if you didn't have a mythopoetic story you wouldn't have meaning like you would just you know you'd be depressed and nihilistic kind of the essence of my podcast is it's like you need to become aware of what your mythopoetic belief is because it could be a tragedy mm-hmm. and you can change it, you know, but like you, you have to like get to like the deep structures of your psyche to start to work with that. And there's something about high dose ketamine and cannabis that can allow that to be the case. Yeah. And the caveat is if you are prone to bullshitting yourself, you can really spin out and just fucking bullshit yourself mm-hmm. with that combo too. So like yeah. it it takes a level of like reality refinement yeah. 
yes. to get the juice from it. Because, like, don't be the dude bro who cheats on his girl and then does ketamine and heals the trauma in the astral and then comes back to his girl. And it's like, don't worry, baby. I took care of it in the astral. We're all good. You know, like, <laughs> that's not how to play the game with this right. type of stuff. And just for people listening, if the research is looking incredibly promising for if you have a treatment resistant depression, if you have anxiety, if you have OCD, if you have um, PTSD, ketamine seems to be incredibly helpful for all of those quote unquote disorders. But it is also available uh, to be abused because mm -hmm. it it helps really quickly and it can yeah. fade away quickly. And anything that helps quick and recedes quick has the opportunity to be addictive. Right, right. Yeah, ton of great points there. Um, one one thing that came up when you were speaking there was around how how we're able to get these good ideas there, which it reminded me of something that I heard recently um, about how, for example, some people get really good ideas in the shower, or we know that like Albert Einstein would get really good ideas out on a walk. It's kind of this like non-working mind that you're not really trying to do anything, so it almost allows the flow of deeper insight to occur within the mind. You know, like when you're taking a piss, for example, I give a ton of good ideas when I'm taking a piss. I don't know why I joke about it all the time. Um, it's like, I'll be talking with a friend. We'll be kind of be stuck on something we don't really know the solution to. I'll have to pee just organically run to the bathroom, piss. And while I'm pissing, the solution will come to me and I'll come back and be like, dude, I know cool. the answer. And, a lot of times it works, you know what I mean? So I was just going to say like um, ketamine seems to allow our mind to free up enough so that deep insight and intuition can occur to us. Um, but I do agree that it is a slippery slope because some ideas can be too grandiose, too big of a mission to really realistically take on. Like I know how to save the world. You know what I mean? It's like, First, save yourself. <laughs> I know you could talk for a long time on that, but um, right. Um, I do have two more topics, but is I'm, there anything I'm you want to respond to there before I jump to them? Yeah, so I'm, I'm super passionate about the last point that you just made, which is that yeah. if you dance with psychedelics, one of the things that is absolutely possible is you will enter into the archetypical state that we would describe as a psychosis. And I just want to break down what this looks like. So we talked about it at the okay. beginning of the podcast. You have your pre-tragic orientation towards life. There are seeds in the pre-tragic about what, you, what your soul knows you're meant to become. And then the tragic happens. And the tragic wounds that innocence that knew, like what is your task to become in this lifetime? our response to the tragedy of life is either to allow it to depress us, like to push us down below it and just crush us, or we try to inflate above it. The inflating above it is, the, is what we observe as psychosis. So um, we live in an infinite universe. The yeah. potential 
like in this universe, there is the potential to create a type of device that could absorb 100% of the energy coming from the sun and every machine that we could ever create could be powered forever. Not mm-hmm. forever, but for like billions of years. The amount of good explanations that would have to be created for that machine to be is hundreds of thousands. Like, mm-hmm. so there's a bunch of steps that would have to be hit in order for that possible truth to be true. So there's something in people's psychosis where they're glimpsing a truth, where it's like the potential of what you could be is literally, it would break your fucking brain to comprehend it. Sure. It's, it's godly. Yeah. The, what makes it a psychosis is that you skip the 10,000 iterations and just go to the end point and then act as if because you could imagine it, you should be treated that way. Mm-hmm. So a specific example would be if you have a vision that you're that you know you're going to be the next Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. You haven't recorded a podcast. Yeah. Hold on to that b- belief quietly and tenderly and go record your first podcast. And see how you do. And then go record your next one until you recorded a thousand. Like, shut the fuck up. I love you, but shut up and run the experiments to slowly start to move towards that vision. If you have a vision that you're literally Jesus, Mm -hmm. A, keep it to yourself and go spend a day where you just interact with the homeless. Like, just go outside in Austin and just go be Jesus. Just shut up and go be. And at the end of the day, sit down with yourself tenderly and ask yourself, all right, am I? Because what happens when people get into that this type of inflated state is they use the, infl- they use the inflated state unconsciously to get from the people around them what they want to get. So what I mean is, A lot of people who have a psychotic break, really what they want is they want their dad to respect them and they want their mom to get off their back. Mm -hmm. And the psychosis might create the solution by getting the dad to start to pay attention for the first time and scaring the mom enough to not try to micromanage everything. People are really smart. And people want certain things from their relationships, depending on, you know, the type of attachment that they created when they were children that MDMA can help with. Mm -hmm. But psychoses, unless there's been a explicit injury to the brain, which is almost not ever the case, there is some deep part of the unconscious that's trying, that is playing the, that is playing a type of strategy to get a type of reward from the people around it. You know, and so like people who claim that they're Jesus, who really feel like they are the Jesus, what they want is they want to be seen. They want to be respected. They want to be loved. And they, and they want the permission to tell others how to be because they really believe that they can help them. So they just try to skip the 10,000 steps that get you to the point where you've earned the right to have people listen to your advice. And they yeah. want to jump all the way there. And it's like, let me tell you why I'm the Jesus. Right. And so the alchemy 
for anyone here who feels like they might struggle with this is tenderly build something, start as small as you need to start and build something and see if it works. And it could be like, literally like try to make a birdhouse in an afternoon mm -hmm. or try to make a website. Yeah. Try to create like, if you think that you're meant to sell out stadiums, sell one thing online. Mm -hmm. And that'll probably take you like two years. Like <laughs> try to sell something until you see money go into your bank account online and just feel how 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 much competence it requires to even start to claim that you're X, Y, or Z. And the beautiful yep. thing about that is that if you do that, you're going to actually genuinely start to move closer to that vision. Mm-hmm you will get to learn things about the real world and you will be humbled. The thing about trying to build anything is that it fucking humbles you. If you're only doing ketamine and cannabis and you're talking about how you're doing X, Y, and Z and star galaxies and whatever the fucking thing is, yeah. and you're not trying to build anything that has to work or else like people who build a bridge, if you don't get it right, people die. It can fail. You have to get it right. And there's a way to get it right. And there's a way to get it wrong. I think for spiritually inclined people who are playing with any of these mind-altering things, a part of your integration is to try to make shit. Yeah, thousand percent. Yeah, well worded. Um, and it made me think too about <clears throat> how the people that might think they're Jesus and want to go out onto the street and let people know how they are and talk about it more than act is uh, definitely <clears throat> build something enough to the point that you're being invited to ask. You're invited to share that information. Right. If no one's inviting you to share it and you're just pressing it onto everyone all the time, I mean, something's out of balance probably. Yeah. And the tender thing to feel into is like people who understand how to think archetypically and symbolically get to unlock a whole different set of tools and skills to just help life be more dope. And it's like, if you can think symbolically, you have a Jesus archetype in you and go grow that thing. But guess what? Everybody else does too. And you don't get to tell anyone what to do. Absolutely. Ooh, love it. Um, okay, so I've got uh, two more topics we can kind of try and breeze through here. Uh, one is <laughs> enlightenment. Yeah, well, let's just breeze breeze through that. Breeze through enlightenment. <laughs> I just want to respect your time, obviously, but I'm happy to stay as long as you are. Um, I'm down to but, stay as long as it takes to answer these two questions. Okay, well. wonderful. So enlightenment... <clears throat> It's kind of a state of being we hear about that's a, apparently achievable by humans that is almost like the way we think about it, and this is part of my question is whether it is or not this way, but the part we think about it is it's like a permanent state. It's like we come into some new awareness that is never going to leave us, and it's we're, we're permanently now transcended into a higher state of consciousness that maybe can never be uh, diminished or, or lowered back to our normal baseline animal type consciousness. 
Um, like I said earlier, after some of my psychedelic experiences, particularly this big one with mushrooms, I did have a enlightening period. I did feel like four weeks I was on a new plane of reality and I was able to see crazy, like I know a whole new world. And, and, and I knew how to take care of myself better. I knew how to eat better. I knew how to sleep better. I knew how to treat people better. I could just sense it all. And I was in the flow with that. And it lasted a while. And that's what we might call an afterglow. Um, if you but I did in on the moment that it stopped, can you, yeah. what happened? Man, it would take me a minute to try and remember it. Um, but... I just feel like something was like, I need to take more mushrooms now. And that's kind of like a, uh, clearly I'm not, I'm not right. there anymore. If I need right. something outside of me to get there again. Cool. Um, but I have kept an interest, um, all this while. And is that possible? You know, it's yeah. part of the content that I enjoy on a weekly basis, whether it's podcasts or YouTube videos or whatever is like yeah. people talking about this, um, being able to achieve a maybe permanent heightened state of consciousness. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to bust mm -hmm. your bubble in a way that I think is going to invite you into an even more incredible bubble. So yeah, let's do it. Um, there's fundamentally two types of perspectives to have about existence. You, you could call one finite and one infinite. Mm -hmm. um, you can break down almost any type of per perspective or belief or story as, is this a program that runs on the finite OS or on the infinite OS? I think most people's perspective on enlightenment, especially in the West, and I think the type that you articulated it implies a finite universe. Mm -hmm. So it implies that there is a permanent anything. Mm -hmm. It implies that there's some type of like wind state that like, if I just cross this thing, I've, I've won the spiritual game and now I just get to walk around as a winner. Just I'm fucking <laughs> there, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, it definitely has that component to it if you really feel into the implications of what a finite universe would yield, it, it is a sad state compared to an infinite universe for an infinite universe. There is no completed state because it's because the universe is infinite. There is nothing that it, when it comes to like consciousness evolving, there is no end game. There is no state that doesn't grow into some new state. There is no complete knowledge. There is no utopia because a utopia or a complete set of knowledge of the universe requires that there is a finite, unchanging board mm -hmm. game. And really sure. it comes down to like all of us deep down, have a gut intuition about what we think God is. Mm -hmm. And we all have some, even an atheist, like in their gut, it's like, is this a universe that is like a chessboard and all the pieces are here and it's just how are things moved on the chessboard and God is kind of a thing enjoying its work 
Mm-hmm. Or is the universe like a fucking tree? Just this this infinitely expanding. It's not a game board. It's not a watch. It is it is this horizontal process that has no end. No yeah. end. And so whatever we are, like infinity is this, it will break your consciousness if you try to really grasp it. But it's like whatever you, the wildest imaginations of humans are of, of about what an enlightened thing will be mm-hmm. in the span of infinity, that thing will be such an old memory of like, like how we think of a amoeba just Mm -hmm. so like we can't even fucking imagine it so right um most people i think beat themselves up because they have this belief that enlightenment is a state that you get to that once you get to you're just fucking there and you've won and i think it's a byproduct actually of um how people in the west were educated our educational structure is if you just learn what we tell you and you regurgitate it perfectly, you get to pass the grade and you don't ever get, you don't ever have to contend with those things again. It's just all new stuff. That's not how the fucking world unfolds. The metaphor that seems to make sense to me is it's um, the nature of reality as it comes through you is a song. Mm -hmm. The specific song you hear is because this is how the universe is coming through you. Enlightenment is akin to a a person who is dancing in tune with their song in the moment. Mm -hmm. Like when you're just in radical flow with your song and you can feel you're where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, helping who you're supposed to be helping, and everything's in alignment. That is, instead of enlightenment, you just call it in alignment. Mm-hmm. And if you, and, but the nature of dancing is that at any point you can trip at any point you can stop, mm-hmm. but the song is never going to stop as long as you're alive. So there is always the opportunity to get back into alignment. Mm-hmm. But the thing about this worldview is that in the alignment, in the environment that you are dancing, the environment's always changing and growing and evolving. So the dance move that comes forth can be spontaneous and new, and you've never done it before. Yeah. I think a lot of people see the Eastern's perspective through our wounded educational construct that we all had to go through. You know, I I have done this too, where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, that's the university I want to get the degree from. And if I just graduate, then I'm fucking done. Sure. You know, and it's like, so I think enlightenment, at least for me, is in the same way that like, if you've never done MDMA, doing MDMA once is like 90% of the goodness that you will probably get from MDMA for the rest of your life because it's that good, it's that profound. Yeah. Enlightenment is kind of that first moment of being able to hear your song. Mm. And you act, you, you do the first movement that is in flow with your song and you feel what it feels like to be in complete alignment. And it's like, oh, that's possible. That's the moment. Yeah. 
I think like I was just talking with Caitlin about this yesterday or the day before, but it's like, mm-hmm. I'm at the point in my development where um, I will have forgotten that I have forgotten what it feels like to be in alignment for at most two or three months, mm-hmm. but it's still two or three months. And then I'll get back into in alignment for at most a day or two. If it's a super profound moment, it might be like three days. Mm-hmm. And then I forget. And I forget so deeply that I have forgotten that I have forgotten. And then I can be in a state like this where I, I'm talking about it. And I think I know what the fuck I'm talking about. And then I'm back in it. And I'm just like, I can't believe how profoundly I forgot. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, I'm currently in a state of um, dancing where uh, I get maybe 10 out of 10,000 moves. I'm really awake. Mm-hmm. But like, show me the person who is enlightened. Like, there's this great, great story that Sam Harris has in Waking Up about a woman who claimed that she was enlightened. Have, have you read the book, Waking Up by Sam Harris? No, I It's fucking not. great. Um, okay, so I'm sure, like, the way the enlightenment game is played is the people who really don't get it will claim that they're enlightened. And, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to ignore them, but even they will get followers and they'll fucking build whole careers <laughs> off of it. Sure. Then there's the people who are much smarter than those people who what they do is they describe reality or they describe enlightenment mm-hmm. so clearly that it implies that they're there now. Sure. And that's where most of the teachers who are like right. le- who are legit claim. Yeah. It's like I call bullshit on all of them. Mm-hmm. All of them. If I hung out with them for a week, if you got to hang out with them for a week and you were really with them for a week, you would see that at best, they're incredibly in-tuned dancers, but there are things that you will see where you will feel all the way through your body, oh, shadow, oh, not not it. So it's not this completed process because we're infinite. We're verbs. There's no such thing as a completed state for a human Mm. because you're not a noun. You're not mm-hmm. a box. You're a verb verbing until you fucking die. And then after you die, who knows what the fuck happens if you believe in reincarnation, which if you if you believe in enlightenment, you probably believe in reincarnation, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the story, actually, I won't even go into the story. So that's basically what I think about enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. So I recall something, um, I believe I heard you speak on many years ago, um, and it might have been from Robert Anton Wilson, but it was uh, regarding something like you as a human can go to heaven while you're alive, but only for five minutes at a time. Um, I relate to that idea in that I think that in my deep meditations or in my deep medicine ceremonies, I am certainly in some type of garden of Eden. Um, I can see it. I can feel it. It's present. You could call it an enlightening moment, but like it doesn't last. It is 
only a couple minutes, maybe an hour, you know, um, but then you're kind of back to the matrix. But, you know, now you've got like some afterglow of, well, I know what's possible now. So that kind of gives me some spiritual inspiration to continue meditating and continuing to deepen my, my practice. So that's a good thing. Um, so you're kind of net positive there. But uh, would you say that that's kind of accurate? Is like you can find enlightenment even every day, but only for a very limited time. I have seen no evidence from any human that I've ever met that it's other than that. Got it. You know, so that doesn't mean it's not possible, but it's um, most people have none. I've been trying to for 12 years, and I'd say I probably get it like 1% of the time. Sure. You know, and it's like, show me the person who's even at 50%, you know? Yeah. Wonderful. Well, that's great. I'm glad we got to hit that topic. So the, the last one I have here is immortality, which is yet another kind of very loaded word. Um, but, you know, there are these myths um, for thousands of years now um, around people kind of transcending, uh, ascending, becoming a, 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 what are they called? Um, a Rishi or an enlightened master or an ascended master or in the Tibetan Buddhist practice, achieving rainbow body where you become light and uh, ascend to some kind of new dimension of life. Um, and all of these things can be looked at as like immortality, um, kind of not, you know, if you subscribe to reincarnation, you're leaving the cycle of reincarnation and you're ascending permanently to some higher state. Um, I'm talking more about that than like immortality in the sense of staying in your body for thousands of years and, and like you just don't age. Like there's lots of rumors around that as well, but I, I want to just think about this kind of like idea of, yeah, transcending yep. the body and samsara and these types of things. What, what are your thoughts on immortality? Yeah. So in the model that you are offering, the thing that I would offer again, because I do think that most people who explore this idea that you're articulating, I think they're going to be bringing without realizing it a, a finite OS. And mm -hmm. it's the sense of, if I do the right thing now, when I die, I'll be able to hold on to what I am. And then I can enter into a state where I'm permanently able to stay what I am because I've worked to get to the point where I don't have to keep doing the thing. Mm -hmm. That feels like that's only a possibly attractive outcome if you believe without realizing that you believe in a finite universe. Mm -hmm. Because in an infinite universe, if you chose to permanently become any type of thing that's not continuously dying and evolving. Mm -hmm. In an infinite, like again, these are, it's, it's so hard to grok, but in an infinite universe, whatever the peak state that you could possibly imagine you could possibly become in 10 billion years where the conscious universe has evolved to is going to be so like, a horizon made up of horizons, just a fucking fractal horizon of new possibilities. Mm -hmm. And so um, just the very humble truth, it's not even humble, it's just being honest. I have no idea. You know, mm -hmm. I, my intuition 
before I started studying reincarnation is that when you die, any aspect that your consciousness can hold as an idea that correlates to anything that you would identify as you is gone. Yeah. You know, like energy cannot be created or destroyed, you know, how we mm -hmm. currently understand thermodynamics. So I do think that there is some type of process that continues, but nothing that would resemble anything that we would identify as us. Mm -hmm. But then I started looking at the like the actual scientific research on reincarnation. And I was like, why have I never heard about this shit? Mm -hmm. So the University of, I believe it's North Carolina or the University of Virginia, I forget which one. Um, they have two generations worth of studies about um, families that claim that the children remember their past life. Mm -hmm. The book is called Life Before Life. And it is fucking fascinating. It's like, mm. this is legit evidence. You know, it's not conclusive, but it's legit evidence that you can't just be like, nope, it's not true. Because it's right. like, then explain to me how this evidence occurs. But yeah. since then, they're really like, I actually do feel like reincarnation is um, a real motherfucking option. And it would fit into my view of an infinite universe. The thing about the type of immortality that you articulated is, again, it's kind of like a more advanced thought structure of the enlightenment thought structure. Yeah. So it's like, there's a game happening. Yeah. I don't like the game. The game hurts. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get into a state where I can leave the game. Sure. And it's just that same structure twice. And what I would offer is the opposite game is the bodhisattva game. So are you familiar with the bodhisattva story? All right, so- Quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, so from the perspective of the bodhisattva, the rishi is a coward. Mm, I see, yeah. You know, it's like, motherfucker, I could have done what you did, Yeah. but can you not hear the screams? Right. I'm, I'm coming back every fucking life until anyone, until everyone at least chooses to stay here. I'm going to come back until everyone has the option to leave. And I, I have heard people talk about that, like the reason to create your rainbow body is because you, you can actually assist people who are still stuck in the game as almost like angels. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I think it like in, in some, in some really interesting sense, it's like, the game of life is a game. You get to pick what type of avatar you want to become. There's the, you know, just like there's a barbarian and there's a magician and there's a shaman and there's a sorceress. None yeah. of them are right. It's right. just what flavor do you want to play? One of the flavors could be I'm trying to hone my rainbow body to the point where I get to become an angel and help people out. And then there's the bodhisattva type style where it's like, mm -hmm. no, I'm, I'm coming back into the muck with them over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm going to do it inside of the muck. And so, um, I don't know if immortality is possible in the way that you described. Um, if I'm being honest, when I really drop into it, it feels like that could be possible. Like mm -hmm. just 
I don't know why, but my gut is that could be possible. Yeah. Um, but it's actually, if, if I'm just being frank, it feels a bit cowardly for my mm-hmm. taste. Mm-hmm. And um, that's too strong of a word. The truth might be I'm too impatient to go through all of the processes that it would take to organize my psyche. And actually, no, it's not that. It's, um, I don't trust the promise that it will yeah. work enough to basically give the majority of my life to opting out of being in the game because you would have to make a tremendous sacrifice of your time of being in the game of life with your friends and your loved ones to try to get to the point, you know? And it's just like, there's a part of me that feels like a lot of what we do as a culture around death is for everyone who is still alive after the other person dies because we're the ones with all the pain because we're still here. And a lot of the rituals that we do is to try to like soothe our angst and our pain and our fear. I think people want to believe about like the rainbow body type stuff because ultimately death scares the fuck out of us, you know? And it's like, um, death is like the sun in the sense that the sun is here every day. Life exists because of the sun, you know? So like, imagine if nothing died, this shit would be chaos. Like mm. we would not have a culture. It would, but so, yeah. but the thing about the sun is you can't look directly at it without it injuring your eyes. Now, of course, there's people now who say that, you know, that's a conspiracy theory. And if you <laughs> like, go for yeah. it, good luck. Right. You can't look at it for 10 hours straight. How about that? Right. Death is like that too. Death is this thing that's always around us that we know because of it, life is possible. But if we look directly at it, it would start to like injure us because it's, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's this absolute mystery. And um, I'm not willing to read all those fucking books I would have to read and do all the fucking processes that I would have to do on the, on the potential chance that when I die, I'm going to be able to become like an angel, you know, like that's the, and well, you would have to see proof that you believed truly. And some of these people do apparently like people that are up in the monasteries with someone and they saw their guru or their master achieve the rainbow body. Well, now they know I can do it too. I've seen the proof. If we don't see the proof, it's just kind of like, I'm putting a lot of faith in that. (laughs) So to get into the weeds a bit, um, what do they see that they interpret as proof that immortality is possible and that they're not, and that the thing that they see is evidence of their teacher's soul? Well, the myth, you know, the myth in the rainbow body is that uh, after death, um, the body stays stays really well preserved. It doesn't start decomposing immediately like it does with a normal person. Um, and then, like they see rainbow phenomena, literally physically with their eyes, like a rainbow appears over the monastery, and it's like, holy shit! Like there he goes, you know. And then, of course, there's all this myth and legend around X, Y, and Z past um, 
you know, practitioners that have achieved it. And so it's very ingrained into the culture. And so it's, it's believed, but also I'll say that if you subscribe to like the Tibetan Buddhist uh, idea of reincarnation, our purpose in returning is to have a even deeper spiritual life. And then if we did a good job of that, we'll come back in an even deeper spiritual life until we reach the point that we can leave the cycle of samsara. If you have a really shitty life and you are really bad and really evil or whatever, I, I know evil is like a controversial word, but, but, but it's like you would downgrade your life to now you're in a very suffering position or you came back as an insect or you came back as a sickly animal or you came back, whatever. Like I'm not a scholar on this, so I might not be fully getting it right. But the idea is that with the cycle of reincarnation, you're ascending to higher and higher rebirths that are more and more highly spiritual in your incarnation, whether it be the family you come into or the abilities that you have as a mental faculty when you enter this yeah. life. Like some people are just very intuitive. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I myself sometimes get a glimpse that, damn, that I have a really good past life because I feel really blessed. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm sure you do too. For sure. So, so a thing that I think is important, there's a couple of things that came up, um, but I'll start with the one that feels like the most important. Uh, one of the most common, what feels like mistakes that people can make when they're trying to uh, like create a worldview is they will often literalize a symbolic, mythic idea. Mm -hmm. And um, the literalization of the story that you just articulated, which is the common way that the West interprets it, and is probably the common way that the East interprets it, like you would have to find really esoteric scholars to give a different perspective than that. Yeah. What that yields a culture to create is a caste system, racism, classism, prejudice, because the way a culture takes that story is it's like, well, if you're born here, you're, you deserve to be here, you mm -hmm. know, because you, you earned it. Yeah. And I don't think that when that mythic information is literalized, that it does humans good. It's, it's not a useful story if it's used literally. The way that I see it is, and this goes back to the idea that you brought up about heaven and hell, where like, it's always possible. I really think the metaphor to use to understand how we play the game of life is you're dancing to a song. And when you're in full alignment with that song, at the moment you die, you get the phenomenon of what happens that we interpret as the rainbow as a rainbow body. What I would offer as a potential explanation for that is that's what happens when someone dies in complete alignment. Yeah. It's not a testament. It's it's not evidence of a metaphysical fact because we just don't know. Yeah. But what it seems to be is that like when you're really in alignment with the present moment, miraculous things happen around you that don't seem like it doesn't make sense. Like, mm -hmm. I've got a bunch of stories, but so um, karma 
is your current pattern of how you respond to the song of life. Mm-hmm. And every time you come to that type of part of your song, you can make a bad move or a good move. And the bad move makes everything a bit more wobbly. The whole song gets a little bit more off. And hell is when you're just completely out of alignment with your song. Like I'm sure you've had moments on like MDMA where you're just not vibing with the song. And everyone (laughs) around you is talking in a way where it's like nothing, it's just, you're just completely out of resonance with the environment. Mm-hmm. that is hell. And the, mm, like how loud the volume on that can get, you know, is mm-hmm. up to your imagination and how much you can endure. Mm-hmm. Heaven, I think is just the, the, the type of wording that we can use where more and more of us is in alignment. And mm-hmm. the more and like how far heaven goes up is it's like, how many parts of you could be in alignment? It's not four. It's not 10, it's not 20. Like mm-hmm. to the the amount of parts of the universe that exist is how much heaven could stack up. Mm-hmm. You know, and the um, and the parts of existence is also how deep have how deep hell can go. And it happens in our life. You know, I don't think it's a place that we go to quote unquote after our life. Hell and heaven are eternal, archetypical dispositions to the song of existence that are always available for all people. And that, um, you know, I think people should be careful believing the story of that version of karma. And I have too for a long time, you know, it's not like, Mm -hmm. but because it lends itself to not being compassionate to people who probably deserve the most compassion. You know, it's like, as a kid, that perspective of reincarnation would make me so fucking angry because I would think about, you know, like, I know people who have worked in um, like pediatric care and just to see what happens to some babies. It's like, uh, you know, you just can't, you know? But I think as a symbol, it's a very useful tool to understand how our consciousness works, where it's like you're reincarnating every couple of moments. Like we can actually biologically measure like how long like one present moment is registered in the brain. And it's like three seconds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm you can really feel into that like someone who's enlightened is aware of that reincarnation potential every moment. Mm -hmm. And so in every moment, the choice of the previous moment is the reincarnation into the higher or lower life. And you just Mm -hmm. constantly unfolding. You're just aware of the unfolding. You're like, I choose higher, higher. Yeah, 100%. I'd say that's why at least for me, it is like the the concept of karma and reincarnation is a helpful moral compass because, you know, I've studied it a bunch. I seem to have direct experience with it and uh, I can often choose the higher path um, that doesn't necessarily serve my ego, but it's just because I'm kind of like morally justifying 
that it's better for my karma to do that. It's right. It's like, I'm being presented with, I can either react with anger or I can react with compassion and forgiveness. I'll say to myself, well, it's better for my karma to do that. And you know, it's better for the karma of the people around me too. Right. Yeah. So that's why I think it's helpful. But what were you going to say? Yeah. That where it's beautiful is when it's, um, consciously chosen by the individual to use on themselves mm-hmm. where it is not helpful is as soon as the individual uses it to interpret some other person's life you know yeah. it's like that's I your wrote, karma no wonder you got a flat tire right like i wrote a poem one day uh because i could feel like i was i, I was having a great day it was the end of the day. It was like a Sunday. The sun was going down. It was beautiful. And I saw a homeless person. And I could feel that no part of me felt called to help. And I could actually, I, I, I noticed that because I was having such a good day. Like, mm-hmm. that, like, I could feel I, that my, my like belief in karma on some level allows me to look at the homeless person and just like trust that they will be okay. Just like, mm-hmm. you know, and like the reason I wrote a poem from it is because it was just like a deep contradiction that I could feel that I didn't want to fix either. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's a part of the tragedy of that poem is that like, I can recognize this and I don't want to change it, you know? And I could just feel that like a part of what allowed me to not feel like I was called to go help out was because I have this belief that like, he's exactly where he needs to be to learn whatever he needs to learn. And to Mm -hmm. feel that I felt that way made a part of me fucking angry and sick, you know? And Mm -hmm. so I made some art. Yeah, totally. It's a good way to transmute that. Um, And I'll say that, you know, all these topics are very nuanced and circumstantial. Uh, But it's good to just explore, get a lay of the land, you know, for people on the spiritual path, for people on the awakening path, the medicine path, people working with psychedelics and meditation and, you know, potentially, uh, I, you know, uh, certain structures like Buddhism or Taoism um, that, you know, we feel tend to aid us in that alignment um, with our, our, our song, our soul song. So, Amen. damn, we hit a lot of the great topics today, brother. Thank you so much. Um, whew, that was awesome. So, uh, just to conclude, how would you invite people uh, to your work uh, to, to check out what you're doing and, and find you online and all that? Uh, get a piece of paper and write down the question, um, what is the one thing that I know I need to do, but I'm afraid to do. And if the word need triggers you, then write down this question twice because you need to feel into it. Whatever is the first genuine answer that comes up, if you want to get to know my work more, one, tell yourself the truth. So just answer the fucking question. And then two, if you want to really go deep into my work, go do the thing. Love that. 
Well said, brother. Well, thank you so much once again. And thank all you guys for listening. Uh, We'll see you on the next episode. See ya. See ya.